The reading of the scriptures this morning starts in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Then we go over to chapter 2, and we're going to read uh, verses 18 through 25. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, you are unspeakably glorious, and the things that you have opened my eyes to see this week over the last few weeks actually are very glorious. I thank you for all the private moments we shared together. And now I pray that as we're here in a public place, that you would help me to say what you have shown me so that the eyes of all would be open to see your glory. Father, in just the way that Stephen saw the heavens opened up and he literally saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of what you've done in creation. Please, Father. Do this for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last couple weeks, we have been looking at the glory of God as displayed in the creation of the universe, the creation of the earth, the creation of vegetation and fruit trees, 
the creation of fish and birds and beasts and ultimately in the creation of humankind. Whenever a being creates something outside of himself or herself, it is ultimately a reflection of that being. So Picasso's paintings, Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings, C.S. Lewis's books, all say more about their creators than whatever it was that they were touching upon, because ultimately a creation expresses the heart and the being of the creator more than anything else. And the same dynamic is true of the universe and everything that's in it. It was primarily designed from the first day to this day to reveal God to us in a whole number of ways. Two weeks ago, we ended our treatment of Genesis 1 by looking at four specific ways that the creation reveals God. First, we saw that He is infinitely sovereign over all things because He's the Creator and there are no pretenders to His throne and there never will be. We saw that God is infinitely powerful because with nothing more than the words of His mouth, He's able to create an entire universe and sustain it. We saw that God is infinitely wise in the way that He creates things, the intricacies that He puts into everything, even something so simple as a common orange. He's wise in the way that He creates the story of history and the way that He makes that play out and reveals Himself in the earth. He's infinitely wise. And we saw that God is infinitely good and therefore when He looks at everything He created, He said, Behold, it is very, very, very good. Beloved, so much more could be said because David was right in Psalm 19 when he said, The heavens are primarily declaring the glory of God. The sky, even this moment, is proclaiming the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no place, there is no land where their voice is not heard. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. All of creation was designed to teach us about God and to cause us to be lovers of God. It was designed that we would see Him, learn about Him, admire Him, follow Him, submit to Him all the days of our lives. And given this reality, I do believe that the story of creation is told in such a way as to crescendo on the creation of human beings. And that's not so much because human beings are that much more special than everything else in all of creation, but it is because human beings display something of the glory of God that nothing else in all of creation displays. Nothing. The galaxies, as vast and powerful as they are, were not made in the image of God. God did not say of the earth, as bright and beautiful as it is, that He made it in the image of God. God did not say of the land and the seas and the fruit trees and the birds and the beasts that they were made in the image of God. God did not even say of the angels who dwell in His very presence and who have to cover their eyes and cover their feet at the sight of Him who is holy, holy, holy. He did not even say that they are created in the image of God. Beloved, God Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, said that human beings alone are created in His image. And that primarily means that we were designed to reflect something about Him that is totally unique in all of creation. That we are made in the image of God does say many profound things about us. And I do rejoice in that. And perhaps some other time we will take that subject up and, and think about that more deeply together. 
But for today, my heart is to lift our eyes up and to behold the glory of the Creator and to see that His image in us is designed to reveal His glory to us. That we're made in the image of God is primarily something to be said about God, not merely something to be said about us. And so what I want to do this morning is look a more, look a little bit more carefully with you at Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and 2, 18 through 25. And along the way, I just want to lift our eyes up to the Lord and see what these texts teach us, not only about us, but about Him and who He is and how beautiful and glorious He is. Moses writes in the beginning of Genesis 1, 26, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's a very curious sentence. God said, God singular said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. All of those words are plural, the us and the our. The grammar of this sentence has been the the cause of debate for many, many centuries, actually millennia. Well before the time of Christ, scholars were debating what this means. And over the years, three main options have come to the table. There are lots of other minor ones. But here are the main options for what this language could mean. Singular God and yet plural, let us make them in our image. First of all, some suggest that the words us and our mean that God is conversing with the angels of heaven. You just sort of imagine God in heaven and the angels are stretched out before him. Some would want to argue that God is saying, let us, the heavenly host, make human beings in our image. That God is, in a sense, bringing the angels into the creative process of creating human beings. And I suppose at first glance that seems like this might at least be a possibility. But the problems with this point of view are that Moses never talks about angels in the context of these verses, either before or after. So it's very unlikely that he has angels in his mind. And then to me, the bigger issue is if you look there in verse 27, when God actually created man, it says, so God created man in his, singular, his own image. In the image of God, he, singular, created him. Male and female, he, singular, created them. So here, just one verse later, in verse 27, we see the singular God creating all of humankind. And if he had included the heavenly host in the act of creation, you'd think that verse 27 would also be in the plural, but it's not. So even though some, especially Jews and others who don't believe in Christ, find this very attractive option, I just think from the text itself, it's really not a viable option. Second possibility is then that the plural words us and our express the idea that God is sort of talking to himself. That he's conversing with the counsel of his own will and saying, God, well, what do you want to do? Well, let's us make man in our image. Sometimes we do that too. We talk to ourselves and we talk in plural language. And so some have suggested God is just talking to himself. But the problem with this is there are other times in the Bible where it's very clear that God is actually conversing with himself. There are many times actually. And every single other time, the words appear in the singular, not the plural. Like Genesis eighteen seventeen, God says this. He's thinking of Abraham and what he's going to do in Sodom. And so uh, he says in eighteen seventeen, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? He's conversing with himself, clearly speaking in the singular, and we could show this over and over and over again. So it's very unlikely that in Genesis 1.26, God is talking with himself or talking with the angels. This leaves a third option. Namely, that the meaning of the words us and our mean that God, although he's one, is somehow a plurality. Now, 
as Christians, we have a clear idea of what that means. We have a doctrine called the doctrine of the Trinity. We teach that God is a tri-unity, that He's one God but three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, always one God, living together in a bond of love, three persons. And we believe that the rest of the Bible does explicitly teach the doctrine of the Trinity. So, though in my view, Genesis 1.26 is not explicitly teaching the Trinity, I do think it's explicitly teaching that there is a plurality inside the being of God, and the rest of the Bible, I think, comes along to define that plurality as a trinity. So, I see the text doing this in two ways. Defining God as a plurality. Number one is what we've been talking about. It uses plural language. A singular God using plural language, us and our. The second thing I see is that when God did in fact create man, notice the words in the singular. He created man in the singular, in his image, but he did that by creating two persons, male and female. The language is really clear. God created man singular as two persons, male and female. So what you have is a singular God speaking of himself in the language of plurality, Then he creates the singular man and he creates them as a plurality, male and female, bound together in love. You have to understand that in the Hebrew language, the word for man is the word Adam, or we would pronounce it Adam. So the name Adam just means humanity, it means a man. And in Genesis 1.26, the word Adam is applied to both the male and the female because God sees them as a plural, singular, if you will, two people living together as one in perfect unity. That's the idea. And as one biblical commentator pointed out, what could be more obvious than to see that in God creating human beings in this way, He was trying to express something not just about them, but about Himself. He was trying to express to all the world, I'm creating them in my image, male and female, which teaches us that God is a profoundly relational being. God somehow is a plurality living in unity. I don't want to press Genesis 1.26 to say more than what it does say, but I do believe Genesis 1.26 is teaching us this, that God is a plurality living in unity and is a Christian who accepts the whole Bible as the Word of God. I have no problem reading the Trinity into that, although, as I said, I wouldn't press Genesis 1 to say that it teaches that exactly. We have to see that God in creating humanity as He did was trying to communicate something about Himself. Namely, that He is a profoundly relational being. God is a relational being to the core of who He is. He is a plurality living in unity. And He has been that way forever and ever and ever. And for Him to create humanity... As a marriage, a male and a female locked together in a bond of unity and a bond of love says more than any other thing else in creation, reveals more than any other thing else in creation, the inner workings of the being of God. 
I do believe that the love of a man for a woman and a woman for a man are primarily meant to display to us that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and together they love the Spirit and the Spirit loves them. God is a tri-unity, a relational being living as a plurality, three persons in one, living in holy consummated marriage, if you will. I would never deny that every single human being is made in the image of God, but I cannot escape the fact that somehow marriage displays something about the image of God and the being of God that nothing else in all of creation does. It was designed to display the inner workings of God to us, to show us that He is a relational God, to show us that He is indeed three persons living forever together in unity. So with this in mind, look with me now at Genesis 1.28. I want us to see two more aspects of what it means to be made in the image of God. Having created them male and female, God now blesses them and He says this, Be fruitful and multiply in the earth and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I see two more extensions of what it means to be made in the image of God here. First, when God commanded us to be fruitful and multiply, He was commanding us to create other beings in our image, even as He had just created us in His image. Now, God alone is the Creator. I do believe that He directly creates every single human being. I believe that the sacredness of the fingerprints of God on every baby is why we have to be pro-life if we're to be Christians. There's no way to be pro-choice and a Christian at the same time. God Himself has His hands in every single womb, fashioning every single child. He alone is the Creator. We have not been granted the kind of capacity He has to create. And yet, God has created us in His image. And so, the most amazing, astonishing fruit of the love of a man for a woman and a woman for a man is that when they come together in unity and eternal life is born. Those of you who have had children, have you ever let it sink into you that your children will live forever and you have had a part in that? God gave you this capacity to image Him in the world and show what it's like when love overflows into new life. God loved God forever. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And out of the depth of their love came the overflow of life and all of creation. And then He imaged all of that in us, gave us the same capacity. So that as a man and a woman come together, it's out of the overflow of love that life springs forth. Now I know lots of people have babies who are not in love like that, but originally this was the design, that life would flow out of a relationship, that it would be the overflow of a bond of love that was unbreakable. To me, the first and most important meaning of being made in the image of God is that we are, like God, a plurality living in unity. Two people bound together forever in the bonds of marriage. The second most important meaning that I see is that out of that intimate relationship comes life itself. And as the parent of one child, I'll tell you this week, this hit me really hard. I was driving up to our house, I came to a stop sign, and it just really landed on me, the capacity that God had given to Kim and I to create other beings. It really took my breath away, it actually made me cry. 
I was thinking of things like the Hubble telescope. There are people in this world who can create stuff that I couldn't even think up, you know? I think of that Hubble telescope, I look at all the pieces, all the technology, all the ideas that had to come over hundreds and hundreds of years for every single part to have been designed and fashioned by just normal everyday human beings and they put the whole thing together and somehow they build a ship that can shoot it up into the sky and rotate around the earth. It can be pointed very precisely and it can look deep, deep, deep into the universe. It just blows my mind that people do stuff like that. I mean, I just go about my life every day. I don't think of like creating stuff like the Hubble telescope. It, it amazes me that some people have that kind of capacity. I don't have that kind of creative genius. I just don't. But God has entrusted to me and to most other human beings the capacity to create human life, which is much, much more complicated than a Hubble telescope, and the human life will last forever. The Hubble telescope is going to come and go, but a human life will last forever and ever. God has chosen to image Himself in us by allowing us to create life out of the bonds of love. That takes my breath away. Those of us who have children, who've had that privilege, we would do well to reflect deeply on the whole entire process that brought them forth. And I mean from the beginning. Meeting your spouse, dating, the whole entire thing. It was all designed, every part of it, to display the beauty of the life-giving God who creates out of an overflow of love. Second thing I see in Genesis 1.28 is that God has created to human beings the ability to go out and to subdue the earth and to rule over the earth just in the way that He rules over all things. That word there for subdue, it's a strong word. It means go out and take things, even if by force if you have to. Go out and and take it. I believe that before sin entered the world, the man and the woman would not have had to take the world by force. But I do believe that even in that perfect world, God was saying to them, you must be proactive. You cannot sit back and be passive. The world will not come to you. I have designed you to go and take the world. Subdue this world. And then when you subdue it, I want you to rule over it even as I do. Beloved, our God is not a a passive God. Passivity is actually a very destructive thing. He is not a passive God. He's an active God. Having created the universe, He subdued everything in the universe and He rules over it with great strength and with great mercy. And He's saying to human beings, now you go out and be just like me. Be active. Go take the earth. I will be with you. I will make everything submit to you. But you must go take that land. And when you do, rule over it with strength. Rule over it with mercy. And in this way, image who I am to the world. Now, that kind of dynamic, I think, is probably easy enough to see from the text. But the deeper thing that I want us to see here is that the dominion of man flows out of his relational nature too. So, the image of God primarily means that we're relational beings in the way that God is a relational being. Out of those relationships flows life. That's the second meaning of the image. Now three, what I'm saying is that even the dominion of man is an overflow of the relationship between us. God rules the world as a triunity, right? He rules the world as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He has... He has commanded us to rule the world in community as well. The command here was not issued to the man alone. 
God did not say to the male alone, you go out and subdue the world, the wife will take care of the house, and you rule over her too, and then you, the man, will rule the world. That was not the picture. The picture was male and female come together in the bond of unity, and you together multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over it as a unity. There is inside of God an order in the Trinity. The Father is clearly the leader. The Son is submitted to the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds both from the Father and the Son. There is leadership and submission in the Trinity. There's also leadership and submission among male and female. I would never deny that. But the point I'm making is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit rule over all things as one, and we were designed as well to relate to, to rule as relational beings. Our love was to overflow and to, to, to color, to give meaning to, to give the, the flavor of the way that we rule. In today's world, we see a lot of tyrannical ruling, don't we? In, in all kinds of different forms. People tyrannically rule over the earth, over the beasts of the field, over the nations of men, but this was not in the original design. In the original design, God meant that love would overflow and give that kind of a flavor to all of our ruling so that we would rule with strength, yes, but we would rule with benevolence as well. And in this way, image God, image Him. So, from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, I would conclude that it means at least three things to be made in the image of God. First of all, that human beings, like God, are designed to be a plurality living in unity, particularly in the bonds of marriage. Secondly, I believe that human beings, like God, have the capacity to create other life out of the overflow of love. Third thing, human beings, like God, have been given the capacity and the command to subdue and to rule over all things, also out of the overflow of love. It is the love of the Father that causes Him to reign, and it's our love together that should color, should give shape to our dominion. Certainly, there's more to be said about the image of God than this, but I believe that this is the core of the core of the image of God. We are relational beings, and everything we do flows out of that fundamental fact. Now, I think that Genesis 1.29 plays an important role here. It's easy to miss, so if you look there with me and see, Moses writes, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now, in my mind, the most important meaning of this verse is not that we were all originally vegetarians, although I, I do believe that that's true. Maybe next week when we talk about Genesis 3, we'll talk about why God designed it that way. I'm not sure if I'll be able to get to that. But I think the main meaning of Genesis 1.29 is to say, Listen, humanity, listen carefully to me. I'm your God. You are made in my image, but you are not God. You need, from outside of yourself, you need a source of food to sustain yourself, and you need someone from outside of yourself to create that food for you. God is not like that, right? God is completely self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything outside of Himself to sustain Himself. He doesn't need any food. God doesn't need anything else to make Him a tree from which He can eat. God is God. We are not so the fact that we were designed to have to eat shows our dependence upon God. I do believe Genesis 1.29 is a piece of humble pie for humanity. It's to say, listen, yes, you were created in the image of God. That is a great thing. It's a glorious thing. But keep yourself humble. You are not God. 
Let's turn our attention now. If you'll turn to Genesis 2, 18 through 25, I just want to say a few things here. I told you last week that I believe that the majority of chapter 2 is simply detailing into the specifics of how God created man in His image. And we saw there that though God had already called everything else He had created good, the one thing He looked at and said it was not good is when He saw the loneliness of Adam. And He said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In other words, God wanted man to live in community. God had created man to be a relational being. God had created him to image God and to live as a plurality in unity. And so, beginning in verse 19, God causes all the birds and the beasts to come before Adam, that Adam might name them all, and to see if among them a a mate might be suitable for him. And as I said last week, the, the outcome of this was never in question in the mind of God. He did not actually think Adam would find a mate among all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. What I think God was doing was creating in Adam a deeper and deeper knowledge that he was alone and a longing not to be alone. As beast after beast after bird after bird passed Adam and he saw them male and female, male and female, according to their kinds, I think he began to realize, wait a second, where's my female? I'm alone. Why am I alone? So God is, is, is heightening the knowledge and deepening his longing. And I do believe that God was very wise to let Adam feel the ache of being alone so that he would later know the joy of not being alone. So after Adam had gone through this long and arduous process, God causes him to fall into a deep sleep, takes his rib, creates the woman, and in his own time and way, brings the woman to the man, and Adam beholds her, and he is totally stunned. And I told you last week, I think in part it's because she was beautiful. I'm sure she was. But I think in a deeper way what it was is reflected in his words. He said in verse 23, This at last, this at last, I've been searching for so long, this at last is bone of my own bones, flesh of my own flesh. She shall be called woman, for she came out of man. Or as the Hebrew says, she shall be called Isha, for she came out of Ish. Unlike all of the numerous birds and the beasts of the field that Adam had seen, this one was like him. The Hebrew says, like his face. She had been made in his own image. In fact, she was of him. And so God brought them together that they might become one. I mentioned last week, when God made Adam and made Eve and brought them together, He did not mean for them just to enter into a contractual relationship. He meant for them to become one together. And this oneness between Adam and Eve, or really at this point we should say the male and the female, because still the word, the one word Adam is being used to describe them both. When they came together like this, it was primarily to say something to us about God, to reveal to us the glory of the being of God. This is why verse 25 points out that they were naked and unashamed. This does not have so much to do with their physical condition as the emotional condition of their relationship. It means that between Adam and Eve, there was nothing to hide. They were in complete unity with one another. There was no division. There was no backbiting. There was no argument. I was going to say argumenting. No arguing. There was nothing dividing them. They were together in perfect unity. And with this picture of perfect unity, beloved, right there at that moment is when the account, the only account of creation on the face of the earth, that's where the account of creation stops. 
at the depth of communion between a man and a woman. Why is that? Because at that very point, we come to the height of the revelation of the being of God. Everything else in creation does reveal God, but something about one man and one woman coming together in the depth of a relationship reveals something about the inner working of the being of God that is indeed the height of creation. So with that very verse, we come to the end of the account because we come to the height of revelation. That's glorious. That is a glorious thing. I said at the beginning of this message that the main function of creation is to display God in a number of ways. And the creation does, in fact, display His sovereignty, His power, His wisdom, His goodness, His justice, His mercy, so many things. But standing head and shoulders above them all is the creation of human beings in such a way as to reveal to us that our Father is relational. Marriage was designed first and foremost to show us that God loves Himself in the way that a man and a woman love one another and that everything that God did flowed out of that core of love even as everything we do ought to flow out of a core of love. Think with me. Get in your minds a picture of the the best marriage you've ever seen in your minds. In your lives, I mean. Just think of a couple that, even though they're not perfect, obviously they've loved each other deeply for many years, weathered many storms, Think of their faithfulness. Think of their friendship. Think of their unity. Think of their willingness to get through problems and to work through all of that. Think through all the things they put their hands to and did with their lives. Beloved, relationships like that, whoever you have is the perfect model of a marriage in your mind, that relationship was designed mainly to tell you about who your Father is. He is a loving, relational God, and everything He does is an overflow of love. That's a glorious, glorious truth that I do believe becomes the key thread throughout the entire Bible. We'll see more of that next week. There's so much on my heart to say about all this, but let me just draw this to a close quickly with several thoughts. First of all, I just want to point out that if marriage is indeed the height of the revelation of the being of God, then marriage is very, very sacred. Marriage is a very sacred thing. We should not play with marriage. We should not play with the definition of marriage. Marriage is one male, one female coming together in the bond of love and unity for life until death do us part. That's what marriage is. And we must value that and advocate for marriage because marriage is very, very sacred. It is essentially a display of the mercy and the glory of God in the earth. Young people, as you're getting to the age where you're getting ready to think about having a spouse. You're thinking about God bringing that special person into your life with whom you'll spend your whole life as you're growing through your teen years and into your early 20s and really begin to develop this longing. I want to encourage you to wait upon the Lord. Wait till He brings the particular person to you that He has for you because marriage is His idea. He's already got the person picked out for you. If you'll just wait for Him, you'll know His joy. Please don't believe the lie of the world. Just don't do it. That giving up your physical body to people, to multiple other people, will give you joy and happiness because it won't. I promise you, it will destroy your joy. I promise you that's true. 
God is so wise and He's on your side and He wants your joy. So He's telling you, save yourself for that special person. And when you come together as one, it will be a glorious joy for you. And it will say so much about God and the joy that He has in that kind of loving unity. So value yourself, value marriage, know that it's sacred and wait. Just just be patient with the Lord and wait. To those of you who have been in abusive marriages or who have experienced one divorce or maybe more than one divorce in your life, I just want to say a word to you that God's design for marriage does remain. I believe that all the way to the end. And I don't think He will ever adjust that design for anybody's case in particular. He's passionate about what He's done. He was right in the way He created things. And He will not compromise about that. But... A part of the infinite glory of God displayed in the world is that He is so merciful. Aren't you glad for that? God is tremendously merciful. And if you have sinned against marriage, as all of us have sinned against marriage in one way or another, God in Jesus Christ is willing to pour His mercy upon you and to triumph over all of your sin. He's able, as one biblical writer said, to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. So maybe you've made tremendous mistakes. I'm here to tell you the mercy of God is greater than your mistakes. Don't be afraid to reflect on the sacredness of marriage. And don't dwell so much on the pain of what you've done. Just dwell on the glory of what He's done and know that His mercy will cover your sins if you just look to Him and believe in Jesus Christ. It amazes me how God did this. It is not by accident that in the New Testament the primary image for Jesus and the church is this. He's the husband, she's the wife. Christ is the husband, the church, filled with sinners looking to Christ, become His wife. In Jesus Christ, by belief in Him, we can all cling to Him and fulfill our ultimate purpose in life, no matter how much we've messed up on this earth. No matter how many bad situations we've been involved in in marriages, God can redeem it all. So I just want to say to you, glory in what God has done, value what He's done, but know that He's ready, He's willing to pour mercy upon you and upon me for what we have done. He is a glorious God and an infinitely merciful God. Amen? It's so good to know that our Father doesn't deal with us according to our sins, but according to His mercy. And so I want to invite you all to join me in gazing upon creation, mainly as a display of the glory of God. And particularly, please think about marriage. Think about childbirth. Think about dominion and all of that. In relational terms, see it as an overflow, a revelation of the being of God. And rejoice in Him with me. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for who You are. I thank You for what You've done in creation. And I do pray, as I've been praying, that You would continue to open our eyes to see who You are. I pray that You would help us as we leave out from this place and, and interact with Your creation in a number of ways. Father, I pray that we would have eyes to see that it's mainly telling us something about You. Please help us, Father, to see You and Your creation and help us to worship You with all of our hearts. Father, I do want to pray for those who've come from broken situations and who've had bad experiences in marriage and divorces in their past. Father, I want to pray that the mercy of Jesus Christ would just wash over them right now. 
Lord, I've had a burden for the last day or two that someone, or maybe someone's, plural, have been carrying a burden of a divorce for so many years, and I want to ask you by the mercy of Christ to release them from that burden this morning, Father. Oh, by your mercy, defeat the devil, I pray, and let love cover a multitude of sins. Oh, how we love you and thank you for what you will do and what you have already done. In the great and gracious name of Jesus, amen.